Hey everyone, this is Dave Cruz from Flyber Labs, a podcast on business and innovation in the Midwest and beyond. Here you'll meet fascinating people and learn about new technologies and practices that will change how you look at life and business. Enjoy. Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of Flyover Labs. And today we are lucky enough to have Jody Holtzman with us. And Jody is the Senior Vice President of Market Innovation at AARP. So essentially Jody is thinking about technology and innovation and how these can help people ages 50 and over now and in the future. So that sounds like a pretty big tall order to me. So I invited Steve on the show to tell us more about his views on innovation and what he's doing at AARP. And I think we'll all be surprised how innovative AARP really is. So, Jody, thanks for uh, joining us today. Uh, my pleasure. And, and so, before we start talking about what you're doing at AARP, could you give us a little bit about your background so we get to know you better? Sure. Um, well, I've been at AARP for uh, just 11 years this month. <clears throat> and um, I actually was originally brought in to create the first competitive intelligence group at AARP. Um, then I ran uh, the research group, and then about six years ago, uh, I created this job um, whose goal it is to spark innovation in the market that will benefit people over 50. Um, I came to AERP after a 20-year career in um, strategy consulting of various types. I was a director of strategy at uh, PwC and Cooper's and Librand before that. I was a VP of consulting at, at uh, Future Brand. Um, I was a futurist with the Nesbit Group, going back to uh, the days of John Nesbit and Megatrends. Uh, so a very eclectic career, uh, given that I've uh, ended up in the field of aging. But it's um, kind of tied together both broad trend work as well as this uh, background and skill set with regard to strategy. Yeah, sounds like you have an ideal background for what you're doing now. What what attracted you to a AARP? Um, well, it was a couple of things. Um, one, uh, just the practical was I was consulting at the time, and I was really just getting tired of the consulting slog. And um, but I was looking for. Um, you know, opportunities where I was going to learn, opportunities to work with a, a great brand, um, and increasingly, you know, opportunities to, to work with companies that had a purpose and a mission um, that really had the potential to, to change the world for the better. And all of that seemed to uh, come together with AARP. And uh, I never, you know, before that, um, you know, would have thought about pursuing uh, a, a career, you know, around aging specifically. Um, but uh, it was fortuitous and, um, you know, it's been a great ride. Huh. And and I'm curious, uh, you know, you have a great background in strategy and you're called a futurist. I want to be called a futurist sometime. That's a pretty a sweet, sweet title. Um, but uh what you know from your background those 20 years what was uh one or two things that you've learned that have really helped you what you're doing now and maybe it's hard to distill one or two things but um yeah i'm curious if there's any uh, lessons there 
Yeah, well, I, I think there's, um, you know, several things that came out of that, that experience. You know, one is to understand um, that uh, organizations um, are presented with opportunities that are uh, that have that have both an external and an internal uh, aspect to them. So, the external is about the, uh, the the market landscape and all the factors that that shape it, and you as an organization having something unique and differentiated that that allows you to gain advantage, you know, in 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 that market, and that could be technology, it could be an understanding of the customer. It could be that you've identified a uh, a problem and a solution that's unique. Many, many different, uh, you know, uh, many different opportunities. Um, internally, the opportunity is to really grow and develop new competencies and skill sets and capacity um, that perhaps was not on the radar. Hmm. Um and the companies that, on in both cases, are able to um, leverage that those opportunities are, are the ones that are, uh, are are going to succeed. You know, strategy is about three questions: What are you going to sell? Who are you going to sell it to? And why should anybody buy from you and not the other guy? And the third question is really the most important, and it's really a dynamic question in that it involves three different players, right? Why should anybody, the customer, buy from you versus the other guy, the competition? And you need to understand, uh, you, you have to grasp the, the potential to use the lens of the customer to understand your competition and yourself. And you have to use the lens of competition to understand your customer and yourself. And uh, within that, the, the the key is what is it that's differentiated? What makes you stand apart uh, with regard to the value that you deliver to the customer? Because at the end of the day, there's only one asset that a company has that's really of any importance, and that's the customer. True. That That's quite helpful. And so let's talk a little about AARP and maybe uh, expand on what you just talked about there because that was interesting. But could you uh, just give a brief overview? Well, I, you guys do a lot, but can you brief overview on AARP and uh, kind of your role as uh, head of innovation there? Sure. Well, a- AARP was, was started in 1958 by a social entrepreneur named Ethel Percy Andrus. She was the first woman high school principal in the state of California going back to 1935, I believe. And um, after she retired, she saw uh, kind of the challenges that retired people had. And remember, this is while there was Social Security, these are the days before Medicare and Medicaid. So people did not have uh, easy access to uh, health insurance. And so she started the organization really with a focus on trying to make available to older people health insurance. And um, she, uh, you know, approached every carrier that was out there, and with the exception of one that she eventually found, everybody turned her down. 
And what happened was that, um, as, as often happens in new markets or emerging markets, uh, you know, it takes somebody who's willing to bear the risk uh, to also see the potential for the gain. And what happened was not only did she find somebody to make uh, health insurance available to older people, but um, she proved that the market was quite, you know, uh, uh, quite worthy. And um, once that happened, others started, you know, jumping into uh, into the market. And then after the uh, creation of uh, of Medicare, there were other opportunities with Medicare supplemental health insurance and others. In any case, AARP evolved to become a nonprofit organization that looks after the interests of people over 50. And the mission of the organization is to improve the quality of life for all as we age. Now, government has a role to play in the benefits that one gets through Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid. Nonprofit organizations like AARP and many, many others have a role to play in improving the quality of life. But the private sector also has a role to play in that we buy products and services to make our quality of life better. Um, the challenge that I saw when um, we created this, this function, this group of ours, this market innovation group, uh, was that the private sector in many ways really did not understand the potential that people over 50 presented. Uh, for them individually and, and, and broadly. And so it was our job to figure out how do we build market awareness? How do we build an ecosystem that would nurture innovative companies that, to serve this, this audience? How could we put a spotlight on technology that, um, we thought was worth putting a spotlight on that we wanted people to know about? And how could we put the customer, the consumer, at the center of innovation? So as a membership organization, AERP has 38 million members. Uh, there's roughly about 110, 105 to 110 million people in the United States over 50, and 38 million of them wow. are members of AARP. And so... Um, that right there shows you some of the potential. And what you really have is this challenge in that the basic narrative around old, older people is one focused on cost and financial burden. You know, my, my soundbite is that it's only in Washington we're serving the needs of over 100 million people. Is called an unaffordable cost and financial burden. And the private sector serving the needs of over 100 million people is called an opportunity. And depending on which door you walk through and the conversation you have, whether it's a conversation based on opportunity or the conversation based on unaffordable cost and financial burden, it's a completely different conversation. And it's the opportunity conversation that does not happen enough and it's the opportunity conversation that we're trying to generate. 
Interesting. Uh, that's a great overview. Thank you. And and so I, I'm curious when you talk about the when you're talking about your strategy background and knowing your competitor. So from that perspective that you just described, you know who who would even be your competitor? I mean, it sounds from my perspective, it sounds like more you, which is great. You're, you're trying to work with a variety of companies, whether it's startups or larger organizations, to um, bring awareness to this older population. Um, yeah. So do you do you think you have competitors? Well, you know, AARP has many competitors. Yeah. Um, we don't have a competitor that is a mirror image of AARP. Um, but competition is not about mirror image. Competition is about substitutes. And if you go back and you read, you know, Michael Porter's yeah. earliest work and, and, and looking at five, his, his theory of the five forces and whatnot, it's about substitutes. So, you know, if you use that lens, we compete with all sorts of substitutes. We compete, you know, for people's time. To, to volunteer, we compete for eyeballs on our, you know, in our pubs, and 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 our uh, website. We compete for donations to our foundation, which serves the interests of low-income people over fifty. We compete for uh, you purchasing an insurance product that has the AERP brand on it, or you buy the comp the competitor's insurance product that has their brand on it. Um, we also compete with uh, the decision not to, the decision to join or not to join. Um, so, you know, you have to have an expansive view of what competition is, uh, you know, to really understand the, the competitive landscape. Um, there are players out there that uh, compete in some ways, um, and in others, uh, you know, they don't. But it's a market that is growing so significantly that it really is is also ripe for coopetition. So, you know, you know, if you go back to uh, you know Barry Nailbuff's original book, Coopetition conditions in which it works is when you have growing markets because then you can even keep your own you know share of the market and still you know grow significantly if the underlying market is growing so you know again it all depends on on how you how you uh how you look at it very true and and so when you uh think about and work on innovation are you, do you work on projects internally um or externally, and can you kind of, and if it's both, kind of give examples of how you're working on innovation. Well, in we, both we spheres. yeah, we do both. Um, on the one hand, we're trying to spark innovation externally, but we're also, as an organization, trying to be more innovative and to develop a culture of innovation, which for any large established organization is a challenge because you've already grown up. You've grown up with a particular culture, um, certain ways of doing things, processes, etc. Um, and the fact is, is that large organizations require processes that a startup doesn't. Um, there's just so much more at risk. You have to be, you know, very often more risk averse, and finding that balance where you can 
be risk averse to protect the assets that you have and at the same time spark innovation internally and allow risk taking that's a, that's a very difficult uh balance and every large organization uh for profit non for profit um you know has that challenge and it you know and it goes back to you know the uh descriptions or or um, uh, diagnoses uh, that goes back to you know Clay Christensen and, and the innovator's dilemma, and and that dilemma is you know how do you protect your cash cows and at the same time invest in what are currently small markets but are likely to become the big markets. So that so that's a always a uh, always a challenge. So when we're focused externally. That is our, as I said, that's our primary focus. But we're also looking for those opportunities to bring startups internally, to bring new ways of thinking, bring them back internally. So, you know, my my group's you know success is is both uh, you know dependent on external uh, opportunity as well as uh, as well as internal. And how do you bring in um, a startup internally just with, by partnering with them and giving them resources and access to maybe members or how would that well, it's int- yeah so so we're we're at the point now where we're still not very good at it okay <laughs> right. um, and uh, what the progress is is that we're now aware that we have to become good at it. And so we've, we've, you know, if you talk to startups, what's it like to work with, with AARP, uh, you will not get, you know, uh, for the most part, you know, a, a positive readout. Um, and, and it's going to take, it's going to take us, you know, some time to, to figure it out. But what it requires is, um, for us to start to think about, what do we have to do to be a partner of choice? And, you know, how do we take friction out of the relationship? How do we enable startups to get through what is really a maze of, um, you know, departments? And, I mean, we're a large organization, right? Um, How do you ensure that uh, a startup has a Sherpa whose job it is to hold their hand and decide, you know, when and under what circumstances to make introductions in different departments and to be there when, you know, when, when there's a need. Um, so we're, we're still working on all this. Um, but as I said, the breakthrough, it, you know, historical breakthrough is that we're at a point now where the organization realizes that for the most part, if AERP is going to make available to our members increasingly innovative products and services, that much of that innovation is going to come from the outside, and therefore we have to figure out the ways to work with the innovators. Interesting. And I bet you had a bit of a hand in that since you've been part of, head of the innovation team for six years. That's not easy to uh, turn a ship around like that or change direction a little bit. No, it, it it isn't, and um, you know, in in addition to me, there are many others who, uh, you know, um, also see that need. Starting with with our CEO, 
um, who's, who's been in the role for about a year and a half or so, uh, almost two years actually. And, um, uh, you know, and, and so having that support from, from the top is, is important. Um, but are we finished turning the ship around? <laughs> Not quite yet. <laughs> Fair enough. And, and I'm curious for like an internal project. Can you, do you have an example of uh, a project that started just as a, a basic idea and then slowly gained momentum and you actually rolled it out, you know, even if it's in a smaller market. Um, and then if you do, you know, kind of your thought process along the way, how to nurture that idea and eventually bring it to market. Well, we're, we're, we're starting to experiment with a couple of things. One, one is, uh, we've got several pilots going with existing startup companies in the caregiving space, um, and the telehealth space. Um, and we're trying to see how interested are our members in the products and services that these types of companies, you know, provide. At the same time, we're starting to do um, co-creation uh, with our members um, and we'll be doing more of it with other startups or entrepreneurs who, you know, seem to have a, a, a kernel of an idea. Uh, that we think is a good one. Um, but that's, you know, still uh, a TBD, but it, but it's on the agenda. Um, we're now, we, we recently um, created a, uh, a workspace, we call it the Hatchery, uh, which is like an innovation lab, and uh, are just hiring somebody, a new SVP, to run that who has an incubator uh, background and uh, experience, you know, creating products and services with outside entities. Um, that's going to be kicking off this month. Um, so a lot of activity going on. Um, I would say, are there huge successes? No, they're pretty small, but uh, but they're demonstrable, right? And, you know, so, you know, identifying ways to bring our members into uh, the hatchery to participate in co-creation activities, that's all new um, and has, to the degree that it's gone forward, has been a success. Um, but that we're, we're going to have to figure out ways to do uh, even more of that. Yeah, and you have such a a wonderful almost ecosystem to test out new ideas. I mean, you, you can't, uh, I guess, uh, overexpose or sell your members, but at the same time, 38 million members, is a, that's a pretty good testing uh, platform for new ideas. Um, I, of course, you're not going to approach all of them, but yeah, it's, you get such good at, um, resources for startups or for your incubator. And, well, Right, exactly, and, and I mean one of the the great successes we've had is is a uh, a demo day that we do. We've done it five times. It's called Health Innovation at Fifty Plus Live Pitch, and we've had uh, over eight hundred companies apply wow. over the, over the five events. We only put ten on stage at a time, so we've only had fifty finalists. Um, and our demo day though is different than than others, right? In, in addition to, uh, well, let me step back. What it, what we have in common with other demo days is we have a a panel of judges who are comprised of venture capitalists, 
entrepreneurs get on stage, give their pitch, and the venture capitalists judge. But we do something in addition to that by bringing in AARP members as part of the audience, and we give them wireless voting devices. And um, after the entrepreneurs have pitched to the VCs, they also get voted on by the consumer. And so we, at the end of the day, have a judge's winner and a consumer choice winner. And in the process, the entrepreneurs are getting real-time market feedback from the consumer. And what we've been told is that feedback is really invaluable because the companies really don't have enough time uh, or, or money to conduct that kind of research. Interesting. And, and, how, and how do you decide to work with a particular startup? I mean, I'm sure there's many startups that would be interested, <laughs> and you probably get approached by a lot. Well, 800 with at least with this, the pitch competition. But in the end, how do you go through and figure out? Let's give this this company a, a shot. And uh, well, yeah, I mean, the companies that you know we're currently doing pilots with are, are companies that have they're they're really not quite growth stage companies. They're still early stage. But they are at that point where, you know, they, they've raised at least, you know, one, if not two rounds of, of investment. They have started to, you know, generate revenue. They've started to, to prove, uh, you know, their concept or their product. Uh, they've started to um, obtain, uh, you know, some traction in the marketplace. Um and you know, and 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 the and just like as an investor, you know, the team has to be good, the CEO has to be good, um, and uh, you know, so so there is a, a due diligence process, and it's also we get to see so many that you know we you know the good ones stand out. I mean, that's just yeah. always the case. Yeah, no, that makes sense. Okay, uh, and and what, I'm I'm curious what innovations or technologies. Are you especially excited about? And there's probably a lot because you're an innovation guy. But if you had to pick a, a couple, two or three, is there? A, yeah. yeah. So I mean, there are a lot of great companies that are out there um, that are already, you know, doing things. Uh, companies like uh, CareLink, uh, which is an online marketplace for finding a family caregiver. Um, others in that space are Home Team or Honor. Um, you know, there are certainly companies in the telehealth space like Teladoc and others. Um, and each of those companies is kind of focused on a specific use case and a problem set and finding a, you know, a point solution, you know, for that. I actually think, though, that the future of all of this, and it will be relevant for people across the age continuum, not limited to just older people, um, that that the future is really going to be opened up by the application of underlying technologies like voice recognition and voice command. So when I see products like the Amazon Echo and and Alyssa, um, that's where I see you know the really the great. Pre- potential because that is going to once once everything gets to voice commands it really takes the the friction out of so much once you get to a point where 
you don't have to do something to sync a device with your computer. It just does it automatically, which is totally possible today. But for some reason, for a business reason, because it's too expensive or whatever, <laughs> it doesn't happen. Um, when more of that happens, and again, it takes the friction you know, out of things. When design is such that, um, you know, in the best of, you know, the human-centered design tradition, that um, the more challenged users are the ones who are in the forefront of the thinking of those designing those products, you're going to end up with products that are easier to use across the age continuum, right? Um, having a uh, something with a black background and a uh, two-point font black typeface uh, mm-hmm. and a tiny black button uh, is neither good for an older person nor for a younger person. <laughs> right. um, so, you know, I, I, I think the key to the future is a combination of, of both human-centered design and also underlying technologies that literally make things plug and play and remove uh, the, the friction out of the user experience. Yeah, the Amazon Echo, that's, that's an interesting uh, technology brought up. And I mean, Do you have uh, an example of how uh, a senior might be enabled or empowered or might be helped by you know, like a new um, application feature using... Amazon Echo. I'm kind of putting you on the spot here, but <laughs> um, yeah, can you think yeah. of anything? Listen, listen uh, I, I need to just uh, somebody's knocking on. No, my that's door. fine. No, no problem. Well, they seem to move on. <laughs> um, anyway, um, yeah, I mean, to me, the the starting point is always Star Trek, and <laughs> of course, <laughs> um, you know, so when somebody can just uh, you know call into the air and say, uh, computer, um, get my daughter on, on the screen, or, or my doctor, or my nurse, or my friend down the block. Um, you know, that is just going to allow a level of connectedness that uh, is, is just more tedious and, and difficult, uh, you know, at this point. When you can... Um, also just, you know, say into the air, um, you know, uh, start the stove, uh, and make sure that it's shut off when it reaches a certain temperature or starts to boil or whatever, or after a certain amount of time, again, you know, all of the, you're, what you're going to see is this combination of underlying technologies like voice recognition combined with the internet of things. Yeah, combined yeah. with the internet of healthy things, uh, with remote monitoring of vital signs, remote monitoring of the environment to make sure that you know falls are prevented, uh, things like that, uh, as well as enabling you know the connectedness with friends, community, and family. Interesting. Uh, I like that vision, especially since it starts with Star Trek. That's a that's an important. <laughs> I like it. Well, think of, you know when the you know when the first Bluetooth communicator uh, was was ever shown. No, when. 1965 on the deck of the Enterprise. Really? Lieutenant Uhuru was the 
uh, was the communications officer, and she they didn't call it Bluetooth, they didn't call it wireless, but that's what it was. And she had this gizmo that was in her ear, and and you know visually you know very obvious, um, and that was the communicator. Wow, interesting, interesting. All right, well, uh, I did not know that. So uh, I think we're getting to the end of the interview. Unfortunately, I got a got a, a, one more question that sometimes I like to ask us, and I'm curious because you've had a, a pretty interesting uh, career, and uh, it, it and essentially is what you know what have you learned from uh, your mistakes in the past, or is there one mistake or type of failure? I mean, of course, failures. You know, it's how you look at it, but. Um, is there a good lesson that you have for the audience that you've learned in the past? Yeah, I, w- I would say that, um, you know, I've certainly had my, my share of failures, <laughs> uh, like everybody else. Um, I, I, I would say two, two things I've learned. One, one is, um, you know, a- ask forgiveness, not permission. <laughs> and, uh, and, and the other is to also not wait to be asked. Identify a problem and and take the rein. You know, most people do not have an idea of what a solution looks like for a problem that they've never experienced. And if you have a perspective on that, it's really incumbent on you to just experiment. And, and, and to just put a stake in the ground and, and then start to see, you know, what, what, the, uh, what the reactions are. And um, hopefully you do that repeatedly. You're going to win more times than you lose. And every time you do lose, you're going to make better mistakes the next time. And that's, that's, good, that's a good way to end it. And that's why, as you said earlier, why appreciate innovation and AARP is so important because you can, you can embrace that failure, I suppose, instead of being scared that you're going to get yelled at for taking a little risk and not make, not having things work out. Exactly. Got great. Well, yeah, like I said, that's a great way to end. And, uh, Jody really appreciate your time and, uh, my pleasure. You've got some great experience and I love what you're doing, making it, making, uh, the lives better for, older folks and which which will be me before i know it and uh so uh yeah i really appreciate it and uh thanks everyone for listening to another episode of flyover labs and everyone uh, have a good day and thanks thanks again jody thanks very much take care